Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. To Ephesians, book of Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be there uh, really quickly. Uh, we're getting back into the, the series on spiritual warfare. We took a break last week to talk about church membership, church partnership here at the Austin Stone. We're back about spiritual warfare this week because we're back in the, in the text we've been in for a long time in the letter of Ephesians. And we're there, we're covering spiritual warfare because Paul covers spiritual warfare at the end of his letter. It's a glorious letter to the Ephesian church of all the riches and all the joys that God's given to his people in Christ. He ends the letter by saying, and by the way, you are in a spiritual war. You're not in a war against people. You're not in a war against other people different from you. You are in a war against these spiritual beings, Satan and his demons, who are actively seeking to keep people from knowing God. And so he says in this real spiritual war, his main instruction is, okay, church, you're in this war. Now what do you do? You put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God. You're in this fight by God's design. He wants you in the fight. He gave you armor for every attack in the fight. So your job now, church, is to put on the armor of God. So we've been covering piece by piece of this armor, and today we're going to look at the next piece of armor, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Let's look at Ephesians 6 together, verses 13 through 16. This is the word of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as for shoes... A shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So Paul's command to the church is to take up the shield of faith. Now, once again, like every piece of armor, it'll help you understand what he's talking about for the Roman soldier, how they use the shield for you to understand the imagery he's using. So when he says Roman shield, he doesn't mean like a little oval shield that kind of covers just their chest and their shoulder. This, the shield he's talking about actually was two and a half feet wide and four feet long. It's this massive like door basically that covered the majority of the soldier. And the reason they had these shields, they wouldn't use them all the time. They're too massive to just carry around. But they would only use them when they were besieging a city. They would use them when the enemy had arrows they were firing at them. And the reason for these shields, they would use the shields to block the arrows. So what the enemy would do is they would see this. Okay, they have these massive shields. Okay, let's take the arrows and set them on fire. So that way we can shoot the arrows. If it hits a soldier, he'll catch on fire. And that's terrifying. But if it doesn't hit him, it hits a shield. It'll catch the shield on fire and cause disruption and panic in the ranks. And so they had these, firing, these uh, fiery arrows coming at them. They were blocking them with their shields. And what they would do to extinguish the flame is they would cover the shields in water. They would soak them in water. So that way when the flaming arrow hit the shield, it extinguished immediately. So this is what would happen. These, these intense battle scenes, these shields blocking these arrows, working together as a community, as a team. And Paul sees that. He knows that. People have this imagery in their brain. They, they know this happens. And so he says, okay, here's this battle going on right now. And what I'm telling you is the shield for the Christian in the fight is faith. The shield for, Christian in, for a Christian in the fight is faith. And the arrows are coming from the enemy. Now, when it says the flaming darts of the evil one, 
the flaming darts of the evil one, here's what he means. He means every possible attack of Satan. He means that Satan is going to do whatever he can, light things on fire, do whatever he can to disrupt you, to make you panic, to make you hurt. Everything he can to make you hurt. Now, you have to know this about Satan and his demons. When they want to inflict pain on you, whether it be emotional pain or physical pain, they want to inflict pain for a purpose. It's not just about pain for them. It's pain for the sake of deceiving you. It's pressure for the sake of deceiving you. They don't just want to hurt you. They want to hurt you so that they can get you to believe false things about God, so they can belittle God in your life. It's not just pain for pain's sake. It's pain for the sake of deceiving you with lies about God. And so the two main arrows, the two main arrows Satan and his demons use to fire at the people of God, set on fire, meant to destroy you, is temptations and sufferings. Satan uses primarily temptation and suffering to deceive you about God, to deceive you about God. See, he wants to use the, the vivid and visceral experience of temptation where you have that sensation, that desire, that thought of following sin, rebelling against God, whatever it may be, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's pornography or lust or body image stuff or loving money, whatever it may be, he brings that temptation to you and he's doing it so he can get you to believe lies about God. He wants to embed lies and false notions about God so far into your psyche that it becomes almost unconscious belief. He wants to use suffering, the vivid and visceral and terrifying experience of suffering. He wants to use that to embed false notions about God. It's not just about making you suffer. It's not just about tempting you. It's about using those things to get you to believe false promises about God. So in temptation, in temptation, Satan wants Christians to believe that your temptations define you. He wants Christians to believe the lie that your temptation, the thing that's drawing you away from Christ, he wants you to believe that defines you. He wants you to believe that you have to sin, that you have no option, that he, you have to do what you're tempted to do. That's what he wants. He wants to make your life as miserable as possible. He doesn't care about the sin that you choose, whether it's overt immorality or secret self-righteousness, he doesn't care. He wants you to partake in sin, however that happens. And if he can't get you to sin, he's not going to stop tempting you. He's not going to stop tempting you if he can't get you to sin. He wants to keep tempting you because he knows the things you like. He knows the sins that for whatever reason, because of your history, because of your story, he knows those sins that are always appealing to you. Those sins that constantly come up and you have a hard time saying no to, that anxiety that approval, that comfort, that power, whatever it may be, that control, that situation. And he knows you and he lays it before you again and again and again and again. And what he wants to do, if he can't cause you to sin, he wants to weary you with the fact that you're still being tempted. He wants to discourage you that you're still being tempted by this thing. And he wants you to think you'll never overcome him, that you'll never be able to say no to his schemes. One of the most discouraging things about following Jesus is that. One of the most discouraging things about when you follow Christ is when you realize how little you've changed in some areas. It's, it's really discouraging because there are areas of your life that Christ is going to change so dramatically, 
so wondrously that you're not going to even be tempted in the same ways you used to be. There are temptations that if you're in Christ, I'm sure that two years ago were incredibly tempting, but now they, the same temptations come and it doesn't ring in your heart the way it used to. Those temptations that used to just carry you away, now you're like, why did I ever do that? That's a glorious, incredible thing that God gives to us. But there's also areas where, for whatever reason, that temptation is as strong as it always has been. Well, that temptation is just as appealing as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And you begin to realize, why do I want this thing so much? So you begin to have this question like, shouldn't I be like further along than this? I mean, why have I made such little progress? The same thing for 10 years is still just as appealing to me as it was on day one. And what Satan wants to do is make, that, make you think that's why your faith is futile. He wants the relentlessness of his temptation that he's never going to stop until Jesus comes back. He wants it to use it to deceive you into thinking you are your temptations. That if, he, if that's still tempting to you, that must be signs that you really aren't a Christian. That must be signs that you haven't made it very far. I know there are several temptations like this in my life where it just feels like I'm making really slow progress. And one of them I actually shared with you a couple years ago. is one of my first sermons at the Austin Salem back in 2012. And it, for me, it's the temptation to be anxious when I fly. To be anxious when I fly. I've shared this before, um, but I grew up flying all the time. My mom worked for American Airlines. We flew all the time. I never thought anything about it. And then one day... I was 17 or 18 years old, I'm on a flight. It was nothing new, it was very normal for me on the flight, and all of a sudden, I just began to realize the craziness of flying. You know, like I sat there, I was like, I'm in a chair in the sky, you know? Like, I, I, was, I remember, I sat there and I thought, okay, below me, here's my chair, just flying in the sky, and below me is like 50 feet of plane, and I don't know if it's 50 feet, made it up, but you know what I'm saying, this plane, and then nothing. And then I thought, and we're in this giant metal tube hurling through the air at 500 miles per hour. You should be scared. And I just sat there, and I, it just paralyzed me, and I thought, I'm going to die right here. Like, and I just grabbed the seat, and I just sat there, I was like, I don't know what to do. I just started screaming or something. I didn't, I didn't actually scream, but I just grabbed the seat, and I was paralyzed by anxiety. And I shared that with you three years ago. And every summer when we start booking, traveling for vacation and stuff, I start to feel the same old anxiety. The same old anxiety. I start putting off, like, planning trips. I'm like, maybe we can drive the Dominican Republic. Maybe that's a thing. <laughs> so we could snorkel there. It'd be great. People have done it, I'm sure. And I make all kinds of crazy excuses. Like, well, let's, let's, let's plan tomorrow. I, I feel like the rates for flights are better the closer you get to the date. I feel like that's the way it works, right? And I just put it off and put it off and put it off. And, and that's, that may feel like a pretty silly temptation to you. Like, okay, relative to what you're going through, like I, I've had temptations that are much more severe than that and feel more, uh, less, that feel way more evil than that, being tempted to be anxious when you're flying. But can I tell you why it's so discouraging to me? Because my temptation to be anxious when I fly, Satan is saying a lot of very blasphemous things about God to me. He's telling me, Tyler, you cannot trust God when you feel out of control. That's what he's saying to me. He's saying to me, Tyler, his promises of being with you to the end of the age, 
His promises that there is nowhere you can go to flee from his presence, not true. And it's so discouraging to me, honestly, that I've made such little progress. I I was really hoping I was going to use this example as a way faith conquers all things. And yet, I'm here telling you, I gave that illustration three years ago in a sermon, and I've only gotten a little bit better. Like, I'm only a little less anxious when I fly. Like, I still, every time, like, I'm without fail, like, before the plane takes off, I text Lauren, like, I love you, see you in heaven. Like, something crazy. <laughs> I really, it's, it's like the most dramatic, I love you, and like a serious emoji face or something like that. Because um, I, I, personally, I'm like, we're probably going to die, so here we go. I, I still, I get to the airport, and I still have that just tinge of sweat, and I'm like, here we go. And it seems silly, but deep down, I know I'm believing all sorts of false things about the God that I love and trust. I can trust him on an airplane. And he, but you know, honestly, how Satan uses those moments to, to get at me? He starts saying things like, how in the world can you preach the Bible to people when you can't even trust them on an airplane? How in the world are you going to counsel someone through suffering and help them or have a good marriage if you can't even trust them on an airplane? And it kind of folds me up. How am I? I mean, this is one of the safest ways to travel, and yet I'm freaking out. He wants to use my f- temptations to say, this is why you can't trust him. You're not going to make it. This is an experience of, every, of most Christians. This is Dr. John Piper, is a famous pastor theologian. He says this, when do I doubt God? Not in tragedy, but when I see the slowness of my sanctification. He says, I look at my life, and I am moving at a snail's pace in some areas. There's some areas where you're moving at a snail's pace. And there's some of you in this room where you're currently having the arrow of temptation fired at you nonstop. And you can't think about anything other than that temptation. And it feels almost impossible. It's that t- kind of temptation where it's, it's like a perfume in your nose. You can't not smell it. It's everywhere. And you have a moment of clarity where you don't feel tempted to commit that sin to rebel in that way, whatever it may be. And then it comes wafting back in and you smell that aroma, that you feel that draw to commit that sin and you can't think about anything else. And maybe you abstain from it sometimes and sometimes you don't, but it feels like you're never gonna overcome this thing. You're always gonna be anxious. You're always gonna care about approval. You're always gonna be enslaved to your bank account. You're always gonna want respect and when you don't get it, you get angry like you have all these temptations and it feels like they're just as strong as they've always been and Satan's gonna come to you with the lie of that defines you. In that moment, he's gonna come to you and say, that's why you should just give up and give in. Your faith is futile. It's not worth the effort. You can't stand against my schemes. That's the first arrow the enemy fires our way. The second arrow is suffering. Second arrow is suffering. One of the sober inevitabilities of life is that every one of you in this room is going to suffer in this life in varying degrees, no matter what. Every one of you. Good morning. Welcome to the Austin Stone. Glad you came. But it's true. Every one of you, Christian, non-Christian, wherever you are on the spectrum, every one of you is going to suffer in varying degrees. There's no way to escape it. That's why every person has to interpret it somehow. You have to make sense of suffering somehow. 
When you see suffering and evils in the world, you have to make sense of it somehow. And here's how Satan makes sense of it for you. That's why God can't be trusted. He uses suffering, he uses evil, he uses loss to say, that's exactly what I've been saying. He says all these things about love and about protection, but look at what he actually does. He can't be trusted. He's not good. He's going to come to you in the midst of great sorrow and tell you this is exactly why he could never use this for good. He's going to come to you in dark nights of your soul. He's going to promise you there's no end to this. There's no hope. He's going to come to you in great evil in your life and tell you the lie that God's promises are not to be banked on. That's what he does. That's what He's always done. He's going to come to your aching soul and try to soothe it with the balm of lies. He's going to say, here, put this on your heart. Believe it. It'll help. That's what he does. That's why suffering has led to the deception of so many non-believers and the despair of so many Christians. That's why suffering has led to many people rejecting God outright and many Christians being overwhelmed with despair. Let me tell you what I mean. This is why when you, talk, when you talk to people who don't believe in Christ, who don't trust him, don't think he's the Messiah, don't believe in God at all, they, they have a lot of reasons why that is. A lot of valid and like in their minds valid real reasons why that is. But what's fascinating to me is how when people who are non-believers who don't believe in Christ and don't believe in God how often suffering, whether observed or experienced, has played a massive role in their choosing not to believe in God. It's fascinating to me how often suffering, either observed or experienced, has played a massive role in them really believing not to trust Christ, not to believe in God. I read this article recently in Atlantic Magazine. Atlantic Magazine, and there's a a Christian guy whose main ministry is focused on reaching confessing atheists. And so he did this national survey um, of it was uh, college students who were atheists in uh, who were in student organizations that were confessing atheists, and what he did is they had this interview, had an interview with all these people from all over the country, and here's the one thing they were talking about: tell me your story to unbelief, tell me your journey towards disbelief. How did you get here? What happened? What affected it? And what's fascinating from this article is a lot of different things they take away about church and how we should operate. But what's fascinating is how most of the students, most of them with very few exceptions, they said the reasons for not believing God were rational, like objective data. But really when it came down to it, one of the largest things in their story was suffering, loss, and emotional trauma. And when it came down to it, where the lie of Satan really got into their mind, into their thinking, into their belief system, was through suffering. Let, let me read to you an excerpt. It's really fascinating to me. It says, with few exceptions, students would begin by telling us that they had become atheists for exclusively rational reasons. But as we listened, it became clear for most, this was a deeply emotional transition as well. This phenomenon was most powerfully exhibited in Meredith. She explained in detail how her study of anthropology had led her to atheism. When the conversation turned to her family, however, she spoke of an emotionally abusive father. It was when he died that I became an atheist, she said. I could see no obvious connection between her father's death and her unbelief. Was it because she loved her abusive father? Abused children often do love their parents, and she was angry with God for his death? 
No, Meredith explained. I was terrified by the thought that he could still be alive somewhere. She had rational reasons why. But what gave those reasons weight and validity and influence in her thinking and her believing is because she had this emotional trauma. I can't even fathom what it's like to have an abusive father. It's terrifying and sad. And that experience, Satan got into her thinking that way and said, if he could be alive somewhere, there's no way God could be real. He's too evil for that to be true. I never forget when I saw this firsthand. I had a buddy of mine who um, we worked together before I came to Stone. A really good friend of mine. We got along really well. He was kind of a, he was an, um, a very uh, pronounced atheist and sometimes agnostic. He kind of, he kind of go back and forth sometimes. But he's loved philosophy, and so we talk about philosophy. He's, he's 10 years older than me, so he'd had some more life experiences than I had. We talk about philosophy, and we eventually get to God. And basically, every time we talked about God, we'd always end up agreeing to disagree. He'd tell me, I think you're really dumb for believing what you believe. I'd go, noted. Like, okay, got it. Um, but then one time, he started getting interested in the Bible. He even took a class on the Bible at Texas State. And end up where we started reading the Bible together, where we'd read the Gospel of Mark, and I talked to him about Jesus, and I never could help him see how great Jesus was. He just couldn't see it. And he would always tell me his reasons for not believing were academic in nature. He'd always tell me that I can't trust the text of the Bible, whether it's been translated properly or transmitted properly, or I can't trust the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, or I can't trust X, Y, and Z. But there was one moment, and I mean one moment in three years, where he was finally vulnerable with me. I'll never forget it. We were, we were in his office, and we had just been reading Mark 2, 1 through 12 together, when Jesus he- uh, heals a paralyzed man. And he says that he has the authority to, to forgive sins. And we're, so we're talking about that text. I'm trying to tell him how good God is, how kind God is, how gracious he is to give us his son. And then he said this one line, and it just blew me away because of how much it communicated to me about him as a person. He looked at me and said, Tyler, if what happened to me happened to you, you wouldn't believe in God either. If what happened to me happened to you, you wouldn't believe in God either. And it was eye-opening for me. I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, hey, can you tell me more about what you mean? He said, no. And I don't know if it's because he didn't mean to tell me that sentence, it just came out or what, He didn't want to talk about it, but what I know from that sentence is something awful, terrible happened to him. And he's saying, Tyler, this thing is so awful, so terrible, the suffering so real, there's no way God could be true. I don't care how good you say he is, this suffering says otherwise. Now, why does suffering have such a weight in people's lives? Because Satan uses it to get those false notions into your soul. He uses it to say, this is why all those rational reasons and arguments, there's, there's rational ones for it, but here's why you give all this weight for that disbelief. You're suffering. God can't be trusted. He's not true. He's used suffering to deceive many non-believers. And if you're in here and you don't trust Christ, you don't know him, and suffering in your mind is why you cannot trust him. I'm glad you're here, and I want you to know this church wants to walk alongside of you, because there are a lot of people in this church who know Jesus and they've walked through some suffering who could probably help you understand how God's good in the midst of that. But not only has he used suffering to deceive non-Christians, he uses suffering and lies in suffering to make Christians despair. To make Christians feel overwhelmed. 
He uses the same lies and same tactics on Christians, but here's the thing with Christians. He can't keep you from God. I have to know that. Satan cannot disqualify you from being saved. God will not lose one of his children. You are safe and sound in God's hand, but Satan will want to make you as miserable and as joyless as he possibly can in this life. So even though, Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and you've been saved, then you will be saved in the end. God will not lose you. He will not. You're still prone to be deceived in suffering. You still have this flesh in you that's prone to be deceived in suffering. And Satan uses the same lies in it. See, you'll have suffering in life, Christian, where you'll see evil. You'll see brokenness. You'll see loss. And you'll see it. And you'll go, how does that make sense with the promises of God? God said he'd protect me, take care of me. How is this doing that? And the reason I know this is every Christian's experience because so many of the Psalms testify to the struggle. So many of the Psalms are prayers to God asking him where he is in the midst of sorrow. So many of the Psalms are, is the psalmist seeing evil in the world, seeing tremendous suffering of the people of God, and then knowing God's promises and saying, how does... How does your love for us make sense when this is happening to us? How does it make sense that you're going to be with us and protect us, yet this miscarriage happened, yet this person died, yet cancer was diagnosed? How is that possible? So many of the Psalms is a psalmist wrestling with that. Let me just give you two really quickly. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 22, one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I know there are many of you there now that you hear that and you go that's what my life feels like I'm in this suffering and it's broken my heart it's exhausted my will it's clouded my mind and you're in that suffering and the promises of God seem contrary to what's actually happening and here's what Satan comes and gives you lies when in that season in that moment the lies seem reasonable don't they? They seem reasonable. Like it seems like when you're in suffering, God's forgotten you. It sure feels like you're not here. It sure feels like you may not even be real. Like where are you? Why aren't you here for me? Why don't you heal? Why don't you show up? Why don't you take the cancer away? Why don't you help me with this money problem? Where are you? And Satan's gonna come to you and say, your only options are anger and despair. Your only options are anger and despair. And can I tell you, if you're not there right now and you're like, well, that's not me, it will be eventually if it hasn't been already. Because there's so much evil and suffering in this world that no one can look at it head on and not feel folded up by it. Jesus is the only one who can. Everyone else sees all the evil in the world and it just folds us up. It folds me up. 
And I can tell you, in that suffering, when you experience, when you observe it, Satan's not going to miss an opportunity to fire an arrow your way and say, I told you. I told you he couldn't be trusted. I told you his promises weren't true. I told you he wasn't good. I told you, let him go. That's why suffering, that's why suffering in so many people's stories was the hinge point where they said, I can't believe in a God anymore. Where Christians said, I don't even know what to do anymore. I hate him. Because in your suffering, Satan got in there and lied to you and we bought it. And we bought it. This is why when the arrows come, and they will come, Paul says, take up your shield of faith, 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The faith God has given his people, the shield he's given us, is actually able to extinguish all the arrows. It actually can. He hasn't left you just defenseless with arrows flying at you. You have an actual shield to stop them, extinguish them. That your faith, God's given you, Christian, is stronger than every attack. Every single one. In temptation and suffering, you have a a shield that will hold and stand up for you. You have to know that faith in Christ does not remove you from suffering and temptation. Often there can be this preaching a certain gospel and preaching certain truths that says, if you have enough faith, you won't feel temptation and you won't suffer. That's an absolute lie. You know how I know that? Jesus has the greatest faith of anyone ever, and he was tempted in every way that we were, except without sin. He has more faith than anyone else ever, and he suffers on the cross the wrath of God. No, God gives you faith so you can be strong and steadfast and stand when the attack comes through temptations and through suffering. He's given you faith to be in it and be with you in it. And the reason you have a shield of faith, just so we're clear, the shield of faith you have has been given to you once again by King Jesus. The most incredible thing about what God's doing through Christ is that God didn't solve temptations and suffering by shouting a word of, it's over. No, he wrapped on flesh and he entered into temptation and experienced every temptation you do. He entered into suffering and suffered unthinkable things on the cross. Humiliated, tortured, forsaken by God on the cross. And in every moment when every single one of us were faithless and didn't trust God he was steady he was strong he was steadfast and he went to the cross still trusting God and he died for our faithlessness that's the best thing about Christianity is it's not come here and be strong show how faith filled you are it's come here and cling to the one who has all the faith you'll ever need in Jesus he dies for sin So now he resurrects, and what does he give anyone who comes to him? He gives you a shield of faith. He gives you his shield. Just take it. It's yours now. I'll give you all the faith you need. But here's the faith he gives you. Christian faith is not this blind faith just based on some general idea that God will do good to you. So often we have faith, and it's rooted in nothing more than like a sentiment that you have. Well, God's just kind of kind, and he'll be nice to me. Now, the faith God gives to you, the faith that Christ purchased for you, is one of clarity. 
and assurance that his promises he's given to you will all happen. Faith actually is this trust, this clarity, this assurance that every promise God has ever said in his word is now guaranteed for you in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 1 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Faith is not sourced in just a general intuition. It's sourced in specific promises given to you in this word. He's given you specific promises. He doesn't want to be known generally. God wants to be known specifically what he's actually like in this word. Here's what faith is. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's an assurance, it's, con- it's a conviction, not just God's good generally, but that all the promises are yes in Christ. That's what faith is. It's taking specific text in the Bible, like not just notions of God in the Bible, like an actual verse in the Bible, and go into that text and saying, what has God said he'll do? If he says I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. If he says, I'll be resurrected one day, I'll be resurrected one day. If he says, I'll be with you to the end of the age, he's going to be with me to the end of the age. We go to specific texts, specific promises for the specific fight of holding up the shield. You don't just talk about and pray about and sing about God generally. We sing, we talk, we pray over specific texts. God, give me faith to believe this. The best news about these promises They're yes in Christ, not yes in you. What that means is they're yes because Jesus already did all the work, so they're true no matter how you feel, no matter how you're doing. They're true not based on how strong your faith is, but based on how strong Christ is. So even weak faith can be saved, why? Because he's so strong. So we go to specific promises. So when temptation comes and Satan says, no, you Christian, your temptation defines you. That's who you are. You're always going to be this way. You go to specific promises and you say, no, God, tell me who I am. Go to a promise like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Christian, what that specific promise is, is no, no, in Christ, I'm brand new. Even though I'm tempted, even though I have this old sin in me, it's not who I am anymore. I'm Christ. I'm not obligated to sin anymore. I've been freed from all the slavery of sin. And so you go to all the myriad of promises about your new nature and your new power, and you go to those promises and you read them and you think about them and you meditate on them and you pray over them and you say, God, give me faith to believe these, and you raise up that shield. When the arrow comes flying into the shield, you stand it up with a promise. You ask for faith in that promise. In suffering, when you're going through suffering, and Satan is using it for some of you right now to say, this is why he can't be trusted. This is why he's not good. Go to a text like 1 Peter 5. You think about the future that's awaiting you, Christian. Think about, this is gonna happen. Listen to this. 1 Peter 5, verse eight. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, how? Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The promise that God gives to you that Christ's blood purchased is the suffering in this life, the worst suffering in this life, relative to eternity, will only be for a little while. For a little while. And on that day, the text just promised, the specific promise is, it says God himself will himself restore. He's not gonna send a messenger. He's not gonna even send a book. He's gonna show up himself. And he himself will be there and you won't wonder where he is because he'll be right there and he'll restore you. He'll strengthen you. He'll establish you. See, in all of these things, Temptations, sufferings, listen, Satan wants to use them to destroy you. But the sovereign God, your heavenly father, is using them for your good. He's using them to refine you and purify you and prepare you to inherit the universe. I want you remember that. This is not home yet. He's preparing you on how to live like sons and daughters in the next kingdom. He's getting you ready what Satan means for evil, God means for good. 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Satan means to destroy you, God means, even the evil things, he means them for praise and glory and honor for you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In my personal um, devotion this week, I was reading Luke's gospel. I got the very end where his resurrection account and There's something in that text I want to share with you and we'll be done. In that text, there are the women who've been following Jesus, his mom and the women following Jesus, and they show up to the tomb. He's been dead three days. They show up to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away. And they walk in and there's no body there. And it says, the text says, they were perplexed. They're perplexed. They don't know what to make of it. They've been following Jesus for a long time. What does this mean? He's not here. I don't know what to make of this. Then two angels show up. Two angels show up, and they start talking to the women, and they say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? And this is the text that I read. I want to share it with you, and we'll be done. He says, angels are speaking. They say, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. I read that text this Tuesday morning and it just filled me with so much joy and hope because of what the angels are saying to them. The angels show up, the women are perplexed, they don't know what to make sense of what just happened and the angels say, remember how he told you? Don't you remember what he said? Don't you remember how Jesus said this exact thing would happen? Don't you remember? And it says, they remembered his words. And it got me thinking about us. 
got me thinking about us as we go through trials, temptations, sufferings. We need to remember his words because the incredible thing about the heavenly logic of the angels, listen to their logic. You know what they're saying? Well, if Jesus said it, of course it came true. If Jesus said it, why are you shocked? Jesus said it, so of course it came true. It got me thinking about us. That one day, if you're in Christ, you're going to be resurrected. And all the heavens and the earth will be resurrected and made new. And you're going to see mountains like you've never seen. And you're going to see oceans like you've never seen. And you're going to have bodies that don't get cancer anymore. You're going to have a mind that's not prone to selfishness and sin anymore. You're not going to have an enemy tempting you anymore. You're going to see loved ones you've lost in Christ, you've been longing to see for a long time, are going to be there. You're going to see everything and you're going to stand with your own new creation eyes and see everything and we're going to be in awe. We're going to sit there and go, I can't believe it and I can't wait until an angel looks at you and looks at me and goes, remember how he told you? You remember? You remember how he said all this would happen? You remember when you thought it was too good to be true? Remember when everything around you said, there's no way this could happen? Remember how he said? And then you and I are going to remember his words. And you're going to see that every one of his promises came true. And that's why in this life, when you go through temptation, you go through trial, and that arrow comes flying your way, you go to a promise and you lift it up. And you go to a promise and you pray over that. And you cling to that specific promise knowing it's only mine because Christ paid for this. That God will not waste one drop of the blood of his son and he will see that every promise happens. So we cling to them, we trust in them, we raise them up to stand against every attack and every lie. Let's pray together. Father, there is no one like you. God, there is no one who makes promises as great as yours. There is no one who could keep such great promises. There is no one that could be with us through thick and thin, through everything in every spot and every place on this planet other than you. There's no one that could overcome all the evil and all the suffering and all the temptations on this planet other than you. God, there is none like you. And God, we are a people who struggle to believe and struggle to cling to promises, who have lies shouted at them in the midst of temptation, in the midst of suffering. So God, what we want to ask you today is please, God, give us faith to believe what you've said. Give us faith to see that Jesus' cross is so great and so powerful and so pure and so precious that it purchased every promise for us. That the promises you've given are not dependent upon us and how well we've been doing, but God, they're dependent upon your son and how great his finished work was. So God, would you give us faith to sing songs in the midst of tears? 
God, would you give us faith to pray prayers in the midst of evil? Would you give us faith to cling to promises in the midst of sorrow? And God, would we be this peculiar people who have these precious promises we cling to, this precious Jesus who purchased them and makes us peculiar to this city? Because this city, God, is gonna go through all sorts of suffering. Our neighbors are gonna go through all sorts of suffering. And God, we have, we have the only one who makes, can make sense of any of it. We have the only one in Christ who's not folded up by it. And the only one who is one day going to make all things new. God, that's how incredible the cross was. It's gonna make all things new. So God, until that day, Give us the faith to fight temptation. Give us the faith to fight for belief and suffering. I can make us a people who cling to you. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.